my best friend Rabbi Yitzchak Blau and I spent lots of time, I'm sure this is what you did in high school also, um, debating the, the question of which comes first, halacha or hashkafa. Uh, right, do you, are you supposed to derive your values from halacha as a fixed objective thing, which was the impression we had that Rabbi Salvechik said in Yishalacha, or are you supposed to have your values first, and then you interpret halacha on that basis? Um, those were extreme positions. Um, and those extreme positions still exist. There's an interpretation of each halakha that, um, that says that halakha is where you have to start from. People still hold that. My friend Rabbi Elisha Ansalovich is probably the, the uh, strongest exponent of the position that halakha is just an expression of values. And there's no meaning, really, to, uh, right, to, the, to the content of halakha, except as you break it into values. I tend to argue for a agomlim, a, um, right, a virtuous circle in which values lead to halakha, lead lead to values, and you can, do, you can go in both directions. But I was, I guess, raised intellectually in an environment where there was a very strong bias towards halakha being prior to values, and so I tend to make my argument as values are really important. There are values that are prior to halakha. There are values that you have to interpret halakha in light of. And it doesn't mean, since there are multiple values, it doesn't mean that you can know the outcome of any halakhic issue because you know this value. So you right, say, look, there's a value called human dignity. How could the halakha be this case? It violates human dignity. Well, that's good. It violates human dignity, but it might be in favor of a different value. Right? But, uh, right, so that's, that's the basic framework I'm going to argue for. Um, and I'm not going to, this class, I'm not going to try to make the argument for the position that there are values prior to halakha. There are ways to do that. I'm going to argue with it for a specific value. Um, and I'm going to make it that way. The other value I'm going to argue for tonight is freedom. Freedom is a fundamental value that halakha should be interpreted in light of. I'm going to try to show that to some extent it can also be derived from halakha, because if I'm right that freedom is a value that halakha should be interpreted in light of, it should by now have had enough impact in halakha <laughs> that you can also write otherwise. Right? Otherwise, there's a. But if you can't show freedom in the halakhic system, then plainly, then plainly, my argument has a great deal of weakness to it. Right. But that's, but the framework I'm going to try to argue is for freedom as one of the primary things which, halakha, which you should decide halakha in light of. Okay, is that, is that reasonably clear? Okay, so what I want to I start by um, conceding that this is not my chiddush, uh, right? it's not my creative idea, although I also don't want to tell you that I got the idea from the section that I want to read. I'm going to read it so that somebody, as you can see that somebody else said it, you can decide whether that somebody else is someone who matters to you or not. Right? This is from... Uh, Roshlomo Gorin's essay, uh, which I've translated as Human Freedom in the Light, uh, in the light of the Torah. I think it's Cheruta Adam Be'orah Torah. Uh, it's part of an essay on the holidays, which he sets up a whole structure of the Shalosh Regalim uh, right, as an argument about human freedom, but I want to read it as is because I think he makes, he makes the argument in a way that um, either very much anticipates or very much influenced my argument. It's tough for me to know <laughs> at this stage. I certainly um, read this essay before I wrote the book. Okay, he says, the essential point of departure in the historic experience of the redeemed Jewish nation, when it left the furnace of slavery in Egypt, is a solid foundation of our social outlook that serves as motivation, justification, and telos. And here's a key line for me, because of which, and for the sake of which, all events of this world came to be. Right? He's making a very strong claim, right? This is, this is a, a, a theology of history. Right? All events before and after Yisiat Mitzrayim were framed because of this, right? those prior to the Exodus and those following it. 
and which compelled God to alter the orders of nature and to work the array of open and concealed miracles of that era of Yitzhak so as to root it in human consciousness, is the Torah of Israel's sacred, rec- sacred recognition of human freedom in all the life conditions of individual and public life and in all social and, eco- and nat- national conditions because the human being was created B'Selem Elohim. Okay, so he's making two fundamental claims. One is, which I think is a, a claim that either strikes you as obvious or not, which is that Yitzhak Mitzrayim tells you that God is in favor of freedom. And that, right, Yitzhak Mitzrayim writes this, that the narrative of B'nai Yisrael in, right, uh, of B'nai Yisrael in Shemot is an expression of God's love of freedom. Yes? So the explicit Okay, right? So there are challenges to that, right? Maybe God is only in favor of national Jewish freedom. Right? Not individual freedom, not human freedom, just national Jewish freedom. Right? That's a great question. Uh, right? And that I, think is, you know, that I think we'll have to address, right? Whether we can make an argument that in a Jewish context, the Exodus stands for more than the capacity of the Jewish people to be free of political domination by Egyptians. Okay? Absolutely right. But, he, but his claim, Right, he, you know, just he's like I'm not, I'm not the one making it. That's right. Is that the whole the right the whole purpose of everything was to root in human consciousness the Torah of Israel's sacred recognition of human freedom. Okay, and then he says that you, by the way you shouldn't just think this is about Sefer Shemot. He said everything leads up to it. Also, this also emerges from Sefer Breshit because freedom is an essential compo- right, consequence of being created by Selim Elokim. Can't, right, if you accept that human beings are created by Selim Elohim, whatever that means, right, I don't think it's a good idea to translate it because Rav Gorin had pretty wide bekis and, right, and, and I don't know which interpretation of Selim Elohim he's using, whether it means in, in, you know, in an image sort of like, sort of like <coughs> the image of God or right, the, the way God looks, or does he mean you know, in the intellectual image of God or does he just mean in a mold that God possessed, right, which is what Rashi says. Right, the whole theological controversy about what Selim Elohim is. But whatever Selim Elohim means for Rav Gorin, it means something that has to be free, that it is, right, it's a violation of its nature, of the nature of its Elohim for it not to be free, and therefore, for the Torah to say that human beings are created by Elohim is to say that human beings are supposed to be free. Okay, Regard is also assuming, I believe, that all human beings are created by Elohim. We have to, you know, we have to bracket that there are interpretations of Elohim that narrow it to Jews, or some Jews, uh, right, which we can talk about in another context, but in Regard's context, Elohim is a human Right, is a is a product of humanity, and I accept that fully. And I'm not right, I'm not going to argue that in this context. Okay, so his argument that, uh, that right that the whole narrative of Chumash, from the creation of human being through the creation of Jewish people, is about instilling the value of freedom, right? The value of the Torah of the, tor- the Torah of human uh, human <laughs> freedom. And if that uh, right, then he has lots of rhetoric about every subordination of one human being to another, whether willing or coerced injures the purity of his connection to divinity and his obligations to heaven. So that gets us into another problem, which is, when we talk about human freedom because it's Salam Elohim, does that mean absolute human freedom? Or does that mean human freedom relative to other human beings, but that freedom is not a value in the relationship of human beings to God? Rav Gorin fudges that, I think, and you can read through the section and see if, right, and see, and, and see if, if he comes out of that. So but I want to just get what his argument is. Right? His argument is, that if you read Bereshus properly, if you read Shemot properly, right, you understand the, the, the purpose of the world is to get human beings to understand the value of freedom. 
If that's the case, it, right, it's, it's inconceivable that halacha won't reflect that. And Rav in fact, makes very uh, right. We'll make we'll make um, halachic arguments for that. Okay, so that's stage one. That's Rav Goren's argument. Um, so I guess first question is: Are you convinced that Rav Goren really means it? With all the caveats I put out, right? That you know, um, and the caveats that Mark raised. Um, and secondly, is do you think that his argument is a strong <coughs> argument, or do you think that this is a really radical thing for someone to say, and it doesn't match your understanding of what the evidence of Judaism is? Which is good. Okay, right. So, right. So, right. So there are right. So if you look at, right on the bottom of the page, right, I wrote there. Right, there are uh, counterexamples. The counterexamples are a halacha per se. That's the whole right. We were setting up a system of halacha. Right. So how can you claim that halacha is about freedom? The whole point of halacha is law. Law seems to be an, an antithesis of freedom. Secondly, there's evidivri. Right. That is the whole right. Thirdly, there's evikna'ani, and fourthly, there's the concept of being an eved Hashem. Right, and we can talk about the rhetorical nuances of whether you think that the purpose is to be an Eved Hashem or an Ovid Hashem. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, I, just reading what he yeah. says here, like he's so Okay, so you're reading him that way. Right? I, I think he has, he has two things. One is he talks about the connection to God, and secondly, he talks about subordination to God. So I don't think it's the same argument, but I agree with you that it's easy to read him that way. And then that question goes away. You're just like, he doesn't, he doesn't argue for the full concept of freedom. You have to ask, why did, you know, how does that fit his notion of Selim and Lakim having to be free, only free in certain ways, right? Lots of complications. Yes, Mark. Right, so that's part of halakha, right? Right? Do we think well, of no? Not, I mean, there's a system, and then there's individuals who, you know, who, who will interpret and make a gazela or whatever that, is a, you know, that one has uh, wants to buy limiting my freedom. I mean, I, okay, I, you can I imagine can a more democratic. Now I can't rise on Pesach. You can imagine a much more democratic halakha, right? And you would say that's in court in accordance with freedom. Okay, good. So those are all right. If you look at the structure of halakha, the structure of halakha, as generally understood, does not seem to be focused on maximizing the freedom of its adherents. Yes, yeah, so that's also right. That's a fair. That's a fair. That could be a particular halachic constraint, right? It could. It could be that his conception of freedom is going to end up being more collective than right than indivi- than individual um, in terms of the Jewish people, right? Those are all. Those are all fair points. Uh, I would say yes. Okay, good. So we'll get to that kind of point as well. Yes, David. I mean, he's also not touching on the fact that the whole experience of the Exodus, the the prisoners were out of power. Even though this slavery, in some ways, is built into the system, because it was a plan of the Exodus, and the power of the Exodus, 
so I think that is his point. I think right, I think he's with there, right? He's saying they, the whole point of everything was to teach human beings that freedom is important. And now we have a problem, okay? But you know, so we could say, you know what? But okay, it's an important value. But there are other values that evidently somehow overcome, right? We could try to do that. We have we have to explain evidently, right? Um, I think you have you certainly have to you have to explain you have to explain halacha, uh, and you have to come up with a, some kind of notion of of what it means to be a religious being with an right in a, not in a relationship of equals with God. That is compatible with this. So he hasn't done the work, I would say, right? Of you know, and and something he doesn't want to do, right? He's not, he's not, I think, bothered necessarily by being the problem of being an Eved Hashem. Uh, he would, I'm sure, be bothered by Eved Ivri, but he'll explain it in some way, which I think is not, which I will do as well. Uh, I, I'm open to. I want to push for the most radical version that I can. Um, right, and as I, I, I want to take what I find compelling is his statement and his reading of Rachel and Shemot. So I want to emerge with freedom as having an influence at every level of the conversation, that the value of freedom influences your relationship with God, that the value of freedom influences the way in which you implement, hal- implement halakha in general, and the value of freedom implement, right, influence affects the way that you implement halakha in specific, and particularly, in, right, you have to explain why Avdus isn't a counterexample. That's a very, very strong attempt. And the risk is that it's going to um, degenerate into, uh, into semantics. Because one of the ways you do that is by having conversations about different kinds of freedom. And the challenge, and this is, if you listen to the podcast that this, this summer's SBM students put on the first chapter, you'll see that, like, that was the issue that they pushed really hard about, was to some extent, right, when you... If you allow freedom to have multiple meanings, does that mean that you're just fudging and right and just and just call one of those freedom slavery and life is good, <laughs> right? Right? You know, and and that you're and you might be engaged in Orwellian, uh, in Orwellian tactic. One of the things driving this, which we'll meet again uh, later in the in the Korot, is Isaiah Berlin's essay, Two Concepts of Liberty," um, which I reread in preparation for this class. I should have reread before uh, writing the chapter in the book, um, which is a cautionary tale about the ways in which certain kinds of rhetoric of freedom become totalitarian. So that's a, that's a test um, right, that, that the argument I'm making has to, be, has to be subjected to. Okay, I'm going to try and build a complicated textual argument through Torah now, through Torah and rabbinic interpretations of Torah, and I'm going to try and use that to, um, to um, try and use that to get to both the complicated definitional issues and to solving some of the counterexamples, but you can challenge me in the middle. I'm just going to say up front, I'm not going to start off by dealing with the, the count, with the counterexamples, but I'll do them in the context of this argument. Um, okay. So the the way I started from it is there's a very there's a there's a famous quote in the chapter that might or might not be you know, appended to Pirkei Avot, uh, where the line is right. We have the phrase that that michtav charut al haluchot. That the writing is the writing of is the writing of God, chiseled, engraved, whatever it is on the on the on the on the tablets, and there's a pun al tikri charut el cherut, right? That we revocalize it, and instead of charut el luchot, read as cherut el luchot, and the line is ein lecha ben churin, which we're going to tap ben churin is somebody who is free. That's our right. Different occasion we could try and distinguish between ben churin and chafshi. Ela misha osek betalmatera. So. That's a narrower statement than we might want because it's, right, it talks about learning Torah specifically as opposed to living Torah. Uh, 
Um, that distinction is elided mostly in later, in later sources. Um, right, right, the, um, but there's, like, there's a statement which, which just rhetorically embodies what I want. Right, that somehow Torah is a source of freedom. And in fact, Torah is a source of the only true freedom. Um, right, so I tried to embody that in the book. Right, at the end of the chapter, I wrote right that as a as a bamot, right, ein lecha ben chirin elamisho seik b'torah, ein lecha ben torah elamisho seik b'chirut. Right, that right that if the if Torah is about freedom, so then to be a ben torah, right, means that you have to see yourself as engaged in freedom. And I wanted to, in addition to the counterexamples, I want to put out a couple of ways in which this plays out uh, in the life of a regular halachical yes. If it's if it's in Torah, I don't I don't know why living Torah can't be the best embodiment of universal value. Right, then we can talk about whether you know what what it means for non-Jews to live a Torah life. Right, then we get into much bigger theological issues. <laughs> uh, right, you know, does it involve conversion? Right, does not. Yeah, I think I can bracket those for the purposes of of um, of this class. Um, okay, so here are a number of ways in which freedom as a halakhic value plays out. One is the value of freeing agunot. Right? So freeing agunot, right? that's, a, that's a case where you have, you have all sorts of you have values about the morality of the system and the, right, and the sexual and, the, and sexual fidelity and, right, and, and social roles and things like that. But you can just say, you know what, but people have the right to be free and to be in a situation where someone else controls your choices is it, right? Is a violation of a fundamental Torah principle, and so the reason that you're engaged that you're in, that you're engaged, and I spend a lot of time engaged in trying to free Agunot is because they need because they deserve to be free, and so they have the right to be free. Uh, second is patient autonomy in medical ethics. Uh, right? Do you think right? Do you think that fundamentally all the choices about what to, right how you balance uh, risk, costs, and benefits in terms of in terms of quality of life versus quantity of life and, right, and what sort of risk you're willing to take, do you think all those things should be determined by the system? Or do you think that fundamentally there should be room for people to make their own decisions in that area? So I have a very strong bias towards patient autonomy in, uh, in, medical, in, med- in, in medical halakha. Uh, right? Not everyone does, right? So that's an area where there's a real nafkaminis, whether you see freedom as a value or not. Uh, third is whether you think fundamentally that, l- that leaders should be elected. There's, right, if you look at halachic tradition, there's a very strong bias towards elected leadership at every level, uh, which often doesn't play out. Right? Often leadership ends up, often leadership ends up being um, you know, chosen in some form of, of a self-selecti- self-selecting oligarchy. And if you look at it you know, atomistically, shuls elect their rabbis. Nobody thinks shuls shouldn't elect their, right, shouldn't elect their rabbis. Uh, right, principals of schools are chosen, right, are chosen by boards that are chosen by, right, at every level, right, at every level, um, there's really little basis in halakha for saying that people with authority get to decide who leads, as opposed to the people who are led get to decide who has authority. Um, but again, you know, w- if you're not conscious of that, then you tend to, I think, um, I think you tend to de-emphasize that. Although I think that you know that you know, and you can also argue that that maybe the emphasis on democracy is a medieval phenomenon because of the exigencies of the Jewish community. If you go back to Sanhedrin, etc., you'll get much more appointed system. Uh, I have a sheer called should the judges of Sanhedrin be elected? We're building off of Cook's argument that I, I believe they should, right? Okay. So I try to deal with all those classically. Um, but yeah, again, it'll make a difference, right, whether you have a bias or not. 
if you think that if you think that that's part of the values of the system, so of course you'll be biased towards picking out the Makara, right the sources that are in favor of elected leadership. And if you don't think it's a value, so then you might right just say, okay, we're a monarchy, we're a monarchy, a monarchistic system with a self-selecting oligarchy as the right as its judicial as, as its judicial legislative body, and just go home. Uh, okay, fourth example is labor law. So that many of you know from the Shirla that I spent the. Oh, I don't know that's true. The king, right? The, the, the founders of dynasties are elected. The choice among the successors are elected. And what happens if the population no longer wishes that king? We only have one example, which is the breakoff of the Israelite kingdom, which no one ever claims is anahalachic. No one ever claims there's an obligation of the Israelite kingdom to resubmit to the Davidic monarchy. Dr. Malkasenkovich gave a really fun shir at that at a, at a CMTL conference about 15 years ago. Uh, it's really interesting, right? We have these biases, but we have a, a dream of a messianic king. And then the second thing is, is the king more than a figurehead? So that's a, you know, an article I've published in other contexts that I think that there's no... Maharaz Chayas says this, or Shol Yisraeli says this, I think it's utterly, utterly compelling in Rambam, that, the, that there is no, the, the king is a, a sovereign figurehead unless the population chooses to give the king more power than that. Right, that's the understanding of... of of the difference between the, the, the totally negative description of the king's powers in Deuteronomy and the positive description in Joshua and Samuel. Like, all these things, by the way, you get, right, there's, again, this is a, a life position, so you're welcome, you're welcome to, to ask, ask me for all the articles I'm quoting. Well, it wasn't very negative. Pardon? Well, it was very negative, right? But it's especially, is he negative because he, right, he's opposed to that, or is he negative because, you know, yeah, okay, right? Well, right, I brought get a question, is appointing a king of mitzvah at all, right, a Rabbanel, things like that. We do seem to have a Davidic monarchy as an ideal. Um, but I, yeah. And it has to be properly ratified. Okay, right. I think that's right. I, I think I think that, and again, none of none of the, none of. I'm not trying to make a claim that freedom is the only value. So you could always claim that right. And each of those could be exceptions. I, what I'm telling you is, I'm going to pick the interpret that there are interpretations that are compat more compatible with freedom, and I'm going to pick all those, and I'm going to try to argue that those are the the more compelling interpretation in each case. Um, I'm not trying to make an evidentiary based argument. I'm just trying to like you know, there are just, what I'm trying to show is show nafkaminas. What would change, right? So, what will change if you think freedom is a value is you will have much more of a value in freeing Agunot, perhaps. You will, um, right, you, you will have a much more of a bias towards giving people freedom in making moral choices rather than determining them. Allah should be giving them options as opposed to determining them. You'll have much more of a bias towards believing that leadership should be elected. You'll have much more of a bias towards, towards labor laws that allow for worker mobility. And, right, you'll have a bias in towards uh, public welfare laws that don't create dependency. And those, that's, a whole, that's a whole notion of a, of a freedom-based agenda. I don't want to call it a libertarian agenda because we'll get, fo we'll get into politics. Contract. Pardon? Freedom of contract. Yeah, freedom, right, 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 right. So all, all, all these uh, can be done. Okay. Uh, we talked about the counterexamples, mm -hmm. and there are a set of issues, right, on, right of, of definitions that should be given before we make the textual argument. Uh, the first is, and this is where uh, Isaiah Berlin's um, this usually is framed the difference between freedom from and freedom to. 
uh, right, freedom from is that not is that no one else constrains me. We have to be very careful because no one else constrains me. Does that mean God doesn't constrain me? Does no other person constrains me? Or does it mean I have no constraints? And in addition to not being constrained, because like people like you know, am I free if I can't fly? Right, do wings make me freer? In right, in a sense that matters that, ma- that matters to this purpose or wheels. Um, and there's a second notion of freedom too. So flying is one example, but but where it becomes much more um, much more complicated is when you talk about freedom to be something, because there are things that in order to become them. You have to narrow your choices in the sh- in the short term, and right, you know, the, like you know, basic easy example, right, which is you know, like you know, you're not free to both, uh, you know, both sexually explore and, and experience lifetime monogamy, right? Those are those choices you can't, right? You can't. You have to choose among them. So there are all sorts of choices that um, that give you freedom in the moment, but preclude things long term. Um, I put on Facebook today right, uh, Isaiah Berlin's claim, it did not meet with favor among my, in, among my uh, auditors, uh, that certain kinds of individuality, uh, flor- individualism, flourish as much in disciplined societies as they do, right, as they do in, in uh, liberal societies. Uh, it was an interesting claim, right? So one person correctly said, you know, that like, the vi- our vision of the great yeshivot, often we're, right, you know, the people who come out of them are really strong individuals, even though they live in a very particular kind of thing. This, you know, New England, New England, New England Puritanism develops all sorts of people who are highly individual and power, right, and secure in themselves. On the other hand, they live within a constrained environment, right? They're not going off and, right, they're not going off and becoming Buddhist, you know, one day and, right, and, right, and Jews the next day and then being Christian the third day, right? They live in certain constraints, but they have a strong sense of individualism. Um, so that's an interesting question whether empirically it's true. Um, mental health component? Ah, okay, interesting. Could be that, could be that too much freedom is not sustainable, and people, right, people need some. Yeah, could be. It could be that, that certain kinds of freedom develop only in reaction. And right, you, need to, right, you need to rebel against something in order to, right, there's certain, you know, So we understand that about children, right? Often, right? We argue that children need discipline, right? In order to develop, and maybe adults do also. Maybe societies do. Then we get into like there are, let's say, like if I want to be a really great team basketball player, I need nine other people willing to play basketball with me. Well, that's the separate issue. A lot of speed, right? And you know, and all sorts of things. But I say, but you know, there are, there are lots of things you can't do except in the collective. And if everyone else chooses otherwise, then you just can't have that experience. And you can't develop yourself. So, to what extent do you, right? To what extent are your choices constrained in that way? And to what extent do you say, well, you know, my freedom to do X is more, right? Requires other people and allows me, perhaps, to coerce other people to engage in, right? To engage in activities that will enable me to have that, right? To have that sort of freedom. Sure. Right. So everyone understands, right? I think that you know. Whether you, know, so you have like you have the fundamentally the focus Hobbes and Rousseau, right? Whether what would happen is in a state of nature, right? Is just the strongest, right? Is life nasty, British and short because, right? The strongest just win, and so you you need to constrain everyone's freedom because otherwise, right? No one will have any freedom at all, right? Or Rousseau argued that no, actually, you could imagine a world in which everyone was really free, and the reason you need 
structure is constrained. Freedom is to, to enable society to, to, uh, to achieve certain things, right? It's, it's for freedom to, not freedom from, uh, right? That's a fair, you know, but I think most people don't have, you know, understand that in the world as we live it, absolute freedom would probably lead to those people whose freedom involves killing other people, killing everyone until they got it right. And, right, and that would be, eventually you'll have, you'll have to constrain, you'll ha you have to constrain the people who don't, whose freedom involves expressing power without conscience. So you have to figure out in a society, right? So now once you understand that you can't, you can't have an absolute, an absolutely liberal society, then you have to figure out what are the constraints, right? What constraints are worth it for what purposes? The constraints are worth it to some extent, right? And, to what, and you frame those constraints as, well, we're going to inhibit everyone's freedom for the sake of enabling everyone's freedom from, or are we also willing to say we're going to inhibit people's freedom for the sake of enabling, some, enabling freedom too? Right? And that's the point at which you run into the possibility of an Orwellian thing. Let's say, right, the you know, true freedom is being an Eved Hashem, and so I'm going to enforce everyone to right, refrain from everything which prevents them from being an Eved Hashem so they can experience freedom. Right? And that's a rhetorical move that you will find uh, you know, among, rabbinic, right, among rabbinic figures surely all the time. Right? That we're not actually taking away your freedom, we're get, right, your freedom from. Right? We, are we, we are taking away your freedom from for the sake of your freedom too, and eventually... Someday you will realize that right that we enabled you to achieve something you could never you could not have achieved any other way, uh, right? Or right you know you know that there's a that maybe individually you could be something, but there's something that we can't achieve nationally, right? That's what we call fascism, um, right? And a fancy word to say like the, the the temptation, the temptation to say that everything is for the sake of freedom too collectively is fascism. The temptation to say everything is for the sake of freedom too individually is Puritanism, uh, right? The temptation to say, the temptation to say that really no, actually all that there should be is individual freedom is the ultimate value is Nietzscheism. That means right, the person right, ultimately the person with powers right, the, with the will to power right, is free, gets to make their own values and impose them on everyone else, and then you constrain everyone else's because everyone else's freedom is a constraint on your freedom. Okay, right, that sets out the problems, developing, right. Developing a, theolo a Jewish theology of freedom should have to address all these in great depth. Uh, it's not my ambition tonight to develop a theology of Jewish freedom, and it's not really my ambition in life to do it either. Um, but well, I, I want to have all this in mind to understand that you know, the, what I'm trying to do is just root it as a value in halakha is complicated and is easily distorted. Uh, and also, when I try and set out the argument I'm making to uh, say is a... a more detailed argument of Gurin's, of Gurin's approach, which leads, I think, to a much to, to it entrenching the more con the broader concepts of freedom that I want. Right, so you'll understand why what the considerations are that enable me to do that. Okay, questions. Okay, let's go on to page two then. Okay, um, so. There is a question, you know, the question that Rashi opens his parish on Chumashin and that, uh, you know, I assume everyone goes through, you know, some stage in their life where they're obsessed by this, uh, is, uh, is uh, the question of why the Torah starts where it does instead of with HaChodesh HaZelachem, which is the first mitzvah. So there are lots of ways to, right, and Rashi gives the answer, right, because, right, so that we'll know that we own Eretz Yisrael. That's a whole separate conversation. Ramban gives a, an ethical inflection of Rashi's answer, which I think is very important. And Ramban says the whole story is to teach you that you only have a right to land when you deserve it. Uh, right? It's not about the property of Eretz Yisrael per se. But 
the premise of the question appears to be that halacha is primary. Okay, so that's interesting, right? So you think it's the other way around, right? Because right, no, I mean, yes, it's obvious. Okay, so right, so you don't like Rashi's question. I'm going to try and find a way where Rashi's question means something, and yet we give a different answer than Rashi gives. Right, that's, but I want to start with that question, right? That question sounds like it's a halachism. <coughs> the Torah per se should only be law. Narrative is only excluded for narrative is only included for background information, and Rashi gives his own answer. And the, the plastic Rashi thinks it should start from a sachodesh hazel lachem rosh chadashim, which is Shemot Yudbet, which is right by definition, right the beginning of Nis- which is the first day of Nisan in the year of the Exodus. Right, so right before they actually leave Egypt, but not actually the day, right, because they leave on Pesach, right, so fourteen days before they actually leave Egypt. Right, that's when that's when the Torah should start. Okay, but there is a there is a pasuk in a uh, series of psukim in Yirmiya, Perik Lamidalad. This is verse number six. Uh, right, where where this is like a wild series of nested quotes, right? The word of God comes to Yermia saying, "This is what God said." I said the following, right? God said, "I said the following," right? Unquote, right? So, the, what 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 Yirmiya, what what the book says that Yermia says that God said is, uh, "I made a covenant with your ancestors on the day that I took them out of the land of Egypt, the house of slaves, saying, at the end of seven years you must send off each man his brother Hebrew may be sold to you." He will have served you six years, and then you must send him off free away from you. But your ancestor did not obey me, did not incline their ears. Uh, I'm sorry, Josh, I should have just shared my screen. Okay. Um, so, Yermia claims, right, that God said, right, and this is the context, right, where Yermia has gotten them to send, right, to free, to free their Jewish slaves, and then they all, right, and then it doesn't last, right, it's a very short-term, very short-term reform. But in the context of the claim, God says, I made this covenant with you on the day that I took them out of the land of Egypt. Uh, right, meaning that this is, it's sounding like this is why I took you out of Egypt, right, this was the, this was the foundational principle. Um, but this law that you that that slaves only serve six years and can't and don't and then on the seventh they have to free shows up in Parshat El Hamishpatim, which is in chapter twenty one, which is after the Esar Hadibrot, which presumably is after the day in which God took you out of Egypt. Okay, right. So we have a problem in the narrative. Either way, it seems like this is not right. That this would this would might still make it after Achodesh Rezelochem. Right, even when Rashi, where Rashi wants to start the Torah, this will still be included because it happens after, it happens after that. Um, but there's an interesting pasuk in um, in in Shmot Perigvov, which says the following: So this is a puzzling pasuk because it has no context. Right? God speaks to them; He commands them. And but it says right towards Paro and the Jews in it, but it's there's no right. What did he say to them? Okay, there's a missing there's a missing there's a missing um, subject. So the Yerushalmi. Uh, now we're on on um, source number source uh, number nine. Yerushalmi um, quotes from Shmuel Bar Yitzchak is saying, "Vayitzavim al Bnei Yisrael al Matzivam al Parshat Shiluach Avadim." That the missing content is 
Parashat Shuluch Avadim, meaning the missing content is Parashat Mishpatim. The beginning of Parashat Mishpatim. Now, if you look at the beginning of Parashat Mishpatim, you'll notice that Parashat Mishpatim peculiarly shows up in the middle of nowhere. Right? No one knows what it's doing chronologically where it shows up. Right? No one knows what it's doing literally where it shows up. <coughs> right? after, after Parashat Yitra, all of a sudden it says Ve'ila Mishpatim. Right? So Ve'ila implies that there was some list before, but there wasn't. So the, a reasonable solution that, that many commentators adopt is that Parashat Mishpatim, at least according to this Yerushalmi, was said in chapter 6, but is only included in Chumash here. And biyom, right? And biyom, biyom, biyom. means the day that I commanded you to take, right? the day that I began the process of taking you out of Yitzchak Mitzrayim, as opposed to the day of the Exodus. So, if you take that together, uh, right? What you have is that at the moment that God begins the Exodus, He also includes a right a restriction of slavery. Uh, and this is prior to the right prior to Achorush So the right so right so the, if so even if Rashi were right, the first mitzvah is not Achorush Hazelochem anymore. The first mitzvah is the right is the ban against permanent slavery. Um, and moreover, I think this fits in very well with Rav Garin's thesis that the uh, right that the um, the purpose of the narrative is to entrench the values. So if God says to Bnei Israel at the very beginning, right, look, right, I'm going to take you out of Egypt, and here is the right, make sure that you internalize this value. And so then I think you have a, I think you have a, a much stronger argument uh, for set, right, for setting it up that way. So I really like the, uh, I really like that notion. Um, then we understand why the Asherah Dibrot begin Asherah Sitichem Eretz Yisrael Beit Avadim. That it's not just a right. So the beginning of the start of the bro can be understood <coughs> solely as a as a claim of authority, but I think it's more powerful if you understand it as a right as a valued statement. Right, the, I am the God who took you out of I am the God who took you out of Egypt, and therefore, right, you should interpret everything I'm telling to you in light of right the God who took you out of Egypt. This I think is possibly the position of the Sefer Mitzvot Gedolot who thinks that the mitzvah of Anochi is that God says you should understand that the God who is instructing you here is the same God who took you out of Egypt. Anochi is, an ident- is a claim of identification. Not I, the one pr- speaking presently, but I am the same God. Right? I am the same God who took you out, who took, who took you out of Egypt. Um, also, right, the, uh, one of the anthology, modern anthologies to uh, the Daf al-Hadaf, right, to Rosh Hashanah, uh, points out this would be a very nice explanation of why there's a shofar at Har Sinai, when they started to be given, because it's the same as the shofar of Yovel. Right, the shofar, right, the shofar is a symbol of freedom. Yes, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, it says, yeah. Okay, good question, good point. That's probably why they. I should. I should have been careful. Sorry, translation is probably better than mine. Because Mikates is a complicated uh, term. I probably should be at the time of seven years, and ambiguous. <laughs> Yeah, there right, but in economy, but if you want to try and reconcile them, that's probably the right way, and I was sloppy in the translation. Good, ca- good catch. Uh, yes? 
I assumed it would. Yes. <laughs> So we'll talk about what the slavery thing is. Right? I haven't gotten to the paradox of slavery yet. I'm just pointing out right, that Yermia clearly presents this as a limitation of slavery. Right? I was like, why not ban it entirely? Right? So the easy answer is, well, look, you couldn't, right, you couldn't even get that implemented right, as every seventh year. Right? So you know, if you tried to ban it entirely, you would have gotten it. Right? That's the easy answer. I want a more complicated answer, but, that there's a, but that's the easy answer. Um, okay, right, so we spent all of last year on sources 12 and 13. Yes. Yeah, it's not literal because I'm making it early. It's not actually. I'm not saying it's Nisan fifteenth. I'm saying is right. It's it's when Moshe first first and Aaron are first are first commanded, uh, right? So it's not literal either. But what I'm saying is, it is the way that, Yush, that Yerushalmi understands it, because that Yerushalmi puts it into the pasuk Vayitzavemil Ben Israel. Right, source number nine. Right, that, right, that's. Right, and that, you know, and if you read the rhetoric of Yirmiyah, it sounds like there's a covenant, right? We don't have a right, so you know the covenant is missing, so we have to put right. So there's a there's a there's a flaw in the narrative anyway, because there's no there's no covenant, you know, in Mishpatim about Shulah Hodis I I think it's a reasonable argument. I don't Shat and Chumash, I'm not claiming. Shat and Yerushalmi, I am claiming. Um, okay, um, right, and then we said we spent you know a lot of time in this year last year trying to show how the phrase Kili Ben Israel Avadim, right, in Vayikra. Uh, right, is interpreted to say right, which is where, where we have the paradox in halacha itself that there is a pro- prohibition against making Jews slaves, even though there is a parsha called um, called called um, shiloh called you know called uh, uh, Right, so, so my argument always is that um, there's no way that it can be accidental that Chazal understand there's being an isur of being Eved Lavadim when there's a right, parsha. They understand full well there's a parsha in the Torah called Eved Ivri and they still right, create a halacha which says you can't be Avadim Lavadim just as there's no way that God didn't understand that putting right after is going to raise heckles. So there has to be a rec- rec- way of reconciling them. So one way of reconciling them is the historical progression thesis. Uh, right, all of you know, right, you'll start by quoting the, you start by quoting the Ramam and Karbanos um, in Mordechai, and then you argue about what the Rama really means about what what, Kabot, what it means that Kabbalas were a concession to the people. Uh, right, then it's easy to move to slavery. Uh, then you could have Nachman Rabbanovich did it already, right, did that already, um, and say this this historical progression over time. And then of course you know then you, you know, people have their their own hobby horses as to what what modern things they want right they want if they want to fit Torah into it. Everyone draws their line in some places and says oh that's too that's ridiculous and I'm not going to try and move through that. Uh, I don't want to argue that about Avdut, but as I tried to argue last year about Eved Ivri, uh, actually Eved Ivri very specific, right, it's the other way around. The, the Avdut that the Avdut that is allowed by the Torah is for Jews is not Avdut at all uh, because it enables the worker to break their contract whenever they want. You can always buy your way out. Um, right, and what it, right, actually the Torah is making the other point by calling it Avdut. 
even though it's actually just a long-term contract which is paid in advance, uh, right? The Torah is making making a much stronger point about how, in fact, all restrictions on freedom, uh, including those of ordinary employment, are right are morally are morally troubling, right? right? It's not actually it's not right that it's it's right it's not actually um, the kind of avdut that sh- that should be morally prohibited, and and I tried to show all last year that the that a lot of halacha is playing with this question, like to what extent does our our visceral dislike for slavery play out in our understanding of labor law, which isn't slavery, um, right? But yeah, but um, but it's just a product of uh, of of um, power differentials owing to owing to differences in economic in economic in economic circumstance. Uh, so I think every is not so hard to split. Every Kanani is much trickier. Uh, every Kanani really is slavery, uh, and there's even a prohibition against freeing an Evi. Right, the worst thing is there's a prohibition against freeing an Evi Right, it's taken as a, as, as, right, it's an assay. You must work them forever, and therefore it's forbidden to, to free uh, an Evid. Uh, right, that came up in the conversation we had when we had trouble getting uh, finishing the minion from Infa about whether you can count a golem uh, to a minion or not, because Rebel Yasser frees, uh, frees a slave in violation of this prohibition in order to make a minion. And the Akronim asked, why didn't he just make a golem? <laughs> Obviously, a golem doesn't count to a minion. Because he would have done that rather than violate a prohibition. Right? To which the answer is no, it would have been showing off to make a golem. And the, right, which teaches you that the prohibition against showing off overcomes the Torah prohibition against right, uh, against freeing slaves. Right, you can have all sorts of fun, uh, of fun uh, play. But that, that's why I didn't make a golem. We needed a minion uh, <laughs> today. Unless any of you should think that I am not capable of making a golem. Uh, however, I do not think that is the actual. Also, you left your brother. Right, you know, there might, there might, I might need some equipment also, which I had, you know, but I should have knowing that we sometimes have trouble getting a minion. I should have brought it. I would have had I not realized it would be Yura to um, uh, to do so. Um, I don't think that's the right answer. Um, so I'm going to you know, suggest an answer that you know, qualify it for good or ill. It's obviously an apologetic, and there's a whole discussion of whether apologetics, what apologetics mean. It, it doesn't fit all the evidence. It fits a certain piece of evidence very well. Um, so the piece of evidence it fits very well is that the prohibition is a is a, it's a biblical prohibition against freeing right, against freeing a slave, and um, making a minion is at most a rabbinic obligation. So why should it be permitted to free a, right, to violate a, to violate a biblical a biblical Easter assay, right positive prohibition in order to fulfill the rabbinic obligation of making a minion? So if you look at the um, Rishonim in various degrees, and I like the formulation of the Meiri, the most extreme version, what he says is actually there is no standard whatever for what sort of mitzvah you, that's not, depends on which, right, Gemara, one Gemara says mitzvah shani, one Gemara says mitzvah the rabim shani, let's work on the mitzvah shani, we don't need the, the rabim, that there is no standard whatsoever for what sort of mitzvah you need to free an Evan. Any, what he calls any nidnud mitzvah, right? any tinge of mitzvah is enough to free an Evan. Now, what kind of biblical prohibition is it that can be overcome by any tinge of mitzvah? So I think the answer is as follows. Uh, Evikani does serve as an evit, but they do so uh, as a sort of religious, um, religious internship because an Evikani who is freed becomes Jewish. Right, that's a given in halacha. Evikani who is freed becomes freed becomes Jewish. Also. Standard halachal is more comfortable is that an evikani cannot be held for more than a year unless he or she agrees to be part of this right to accept upon themselves 
the mitzvot that are incumbent upon an Evikani, right? Accepting the Sabbath Torah portion of Shabbat. So it actually has to be a willing religious, uh, right, religious apprenticeship. Okay, now, what is, how does that relate to the question of prohibition of freeing them? So what I want to argue is um, that an essential element of being Jewish, and this is part of the whole we made so far, is that we know that we owe our freedom to God. Right, the whole grounding of the authority of Torah is I am God who took you out of Egypt. So we can't allow someone to be Jewish because a human being freed them. Because then they owe their freedom to human beings. So what we say is the only way in which you can free an Eviknani is if you have a religious reason to do so, in which case they owe their freedom to God. That's why there's no standard at all. So it's not actually a prohibition. It's just a claim, it's, right, it's just a frame which you have to generate a situation such that they owe their freedom to God. And so if you understand Adiknani as religious apprenticeship, and that there's actually no prohibition against ending it, but the whole purpose is that you end up being Jewish and owing your freedom to God, and that you understand that the definition of being Jewish is and the recognition that you owe your freedom to God. So I think Adiknani, there are cases that this that this doesn't work for. I think for that evidence it works extremely well, and that would hopefully um, I would hopefully counter that um, that count right that that counter example um, fairly well. Um, right, the Torah doesn't actually have any interest in non-Jewish slavery. Um, it would be opposed to it. Right, there's a particular form of of uh, of conversion that allows for an inter- that allows for an interim state. Okay. Um, okay, that leaves us. Now I, I need I need I have one more move that I want to make, um, which is that Rav Gorin, and I think what I've done tried I've tried to, to Provide a more nuanced uh, and more, uh, and more in some ways more specific and, theref- and therefore broader argument for rooting the value of freedom as prior to halacha in the narrative of Shemot. Uh, but Ravgarin made an argument around Salem Elohim also. Uh, and I want to try and root that argument in a very particular way, which will relate to the philosophic issues we've talked about. And then that's probably where we'll finish it. So there's a there's a midrash. This is uh, source number uh, fourteen, right on page four. Uh, that um, one of my favorite midrashim. Rav Yudah says in the name of Rav, when God wanted to, it's a, a pun on right. You all know the pasuk says Naase Adam b'Tzalmenu, and the question is right, why is it plural? So one of the solutions to saying Naase Adam b'Tzalmenu is not as plural, but it's a question mark. Right? Now shall we? Right? Uh, actually, that's. That God is asking the angel. Right? The reason it's a plural is that God is asking the angel. <laughs> so you have the story which God creates angels and he and he asks them, should we create human beings? And they say no. And God destroys them. And so God creates a second group of angels and says, should I create human beings? And they say no. So God destroys them. Then he asks, and God creates a third group of angels and says, and they say, you know, you don't really want an honest answer. Um, <laughs> And then, of course, after the flood, they come back, right? They come back and say, ha, we told you. So when God says, yeah, okay, but I, you know, I, I took this on willingly. So what does that, what does that mean? Right? What, does, what does it mean for angels to be, uh, for angels to say no and God to create so many? So it seems to me that, the, that at least a powerful way of understanding is as follows. Before God creates human beings, there's only one will in the world. It's just his. Right? The angels aren't free. If the angels have to be representing... Not right, representing God's best interest because they can't oppose God. And so what the what this dialect tells us is that God has complete freedom from in creation. What he doesn't have is freedom to, 
you can take that could be a full for all the theological things you need, because God doesn't have the capacity to enter into an ethical relationship. So there's no being towards whom he can have responsibility. God doesn't have the capacity to enter into any kind of relationship, right? In, in any kind of free relationship, because there is no being that is free. So the creation of human beings is God's choice of freedom to over freedom from. And the right, and so the right, and so the the narrative, the whole narrative of Chumash, is framed by on the one hand, right, on the one hand, God's freedom, on the other hand, by God's willing choice to uh, right to sacrifice his freedom from for freedom to. Now then, we can talk about right. So, what are human beings supposed to learn from this, and how does that influence our understanding of what freedom, of uh, of what freedom is? But the value of creating human beings is that we are free. Right, what what enables God's freedom to is our freedom is our freedom from. Right, God has to create a free being, which is what the angels are, right? The angels are worried about, right? Because here's a being there, there, right there, that you're creating beings who will do things that are not are not the things that you want. So it seems to me that that um, Rav Goren's claim that this is part of Salem Lakim is not just a definitional argument in the word Salem Lakim, which or not, but is a fundamental understanding of what the purpose of creation is. The purpose of creation is for there to be free human, be- free human beings. But that freedom is complicated because A, we can't have God's freedom, or God's initial freedom from. That's a fantasy. All right? uh, if we try for God's freedom from, this is, I think, the story of Cain and Hevel, we just end up killing everyone else because the only way you can have freedom from is if no one else exists. Um, so it's complicated because we can't have God's freedom from and because in creating us, Right, where God is thereby valuing our freedom from him, he's also sacrificing his freedom from for freedom too. So I think it's a useful metaphor for tying together all the concepts of freedom that we, um, that we have and then for thinking about it. Okay, so when we constrain it in the same way that, you know, let's say we have, um, we have, we have a problem of Agunot, which we want to free, but we also don't necessarily, right, we could construct a system in which marriage was not binding. But that limits the kind of relationships people can enter into. That's aside from the egalitarian question. But we could just write, we could create no-fault divorce. Right? But you might not want to do that, because it might be that there are things that are enabled by commitment. That, right, right, um, right, that, right, that then we, our goal is to mitigate the costs as opposed to, right, as opposed to assume that freedom, is the, that freedom from, right, freedom from restriction, the freedom to make with whoever you want is the, only, is the only value at all. So I don't claim to have solved it at all. Again, the purpose of this year is not to construct a theology, of uh, a Jewish theology of freedom, but just to, right, to argue that it's plausible, maybe even compelling, that freedom is one of the values that you should bring to halacha and that you should interpret halacha in light of, without right, knowing that freedom is complicated, knowing that there are other values, um, knowing that um, that freedom that you know that that freedom often requ- you know requires some people to sacrifice for other people to have everyone to sacrifice all those sorts of things. Okay, that's my. Uh, Sure, number one. Are there are there questions?